Hey guys, what's up? It is week 129, and I feel like this show is going to be like two hours long, and I don't even have an interview. So I'm going to apologize. Uh, Remember, there's always timestamps to jump around if you'd like. Uh, And also, there's a bunch of, you know, social media to follow me on if you're interested. Twitter, you know, I don't have much of a following on there, but I I post, you know, the weekly questions. And uh, Instagram, I'll post the picture and everything like that. So if you're watching on, like, uh, you know, YouTube and you don't follow, you don't have a Facebook, because I know a lot of people don't like Facebook, you can can uh, add me on Instagram and Twitter. All the links will be below. Uh, so let's start this off with a happy freaking Halloween. I think you'll be seeing this the day before Halloween. These are shot, like I said, in the week in advance. So happy Halloween. Celebrate the way you want to. Have fun. Pass out candy. Eat candy. Do whatever you want to do. Watch Halloween for the 30th millionth time or Hocus Pocus or whatever movie you guys usually watch because I know everybody has their cool traditions. But I just want to wish you guys uh, happy Halloween. Uh, next, also, there is a Kickstarter indie Go-Go. I believe it's Indie Go-Go for my friend uh, Brian uh, Papandrea. Um, and he's directing this movie called Feaster Sunday. It's going on right now. I think it'll be very, very close to the uh, you know the deadline by the time you hear this. So there'll be a link below for that as well. And uh, I guess, what else? Oh, yeah, this is pretty cool news. Uh, if you guys listen to a podcast or keep up with the Horphilia Network at all, I'm going to be guesting on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror podcast for the Italian month. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I've always enjoyed the podcast. I've talked to the guys a little bit here and there. So it's pretty cool that I get to guest on on their show because it's one of my favorite podcasts and the guys are uh, pretty good at what they do. I think they're great and uh, they're very knowledgeable and they seem to have fun. So I'm looking forward to that. It'll be the first guest podcast in a very long time. If maybe ever, I know I've jumped on uh, shows before, but I don't remember how it's been a very long time. So I guess we're going to start with the two creep show episodes. This is episode five. I've been keeping up with the show and these two episodes, I can't remember the name, uh, they're fairly kind of, the first one is a generic story. It's a monkey's paw story, which is, you know, very timeless. They've done it in Tales from the Crypt. The story is very old in itself. It's kind of like in everything. Um, these are both directed by John Harrison, who scored Day of the Dead and directed probably the most popular segment in the Tales from the Dark Side film with the gargoyle. Love that one. Uh, John Harrison, uh, he's directed, I'm sure, some Tales from the Dark Side episodes as well. So he fits perfect in this. And I love that he's getting a chance to direct an episode because he fits in with that original kind of creep show, uh, you know, family. The, you know, the Romero family kind of comes from there. So that's great. The first story, like I said, is a monkey's paw story starring Bruce uh, Davidson. Uh, so that's really cool if Bruce Davidson's in a bunch of stuff. Um, he was recently in Lords of Salem. So yeah, he's a good actor, classic actor. Uh, basically what happens here is a criminal kind of crashes uh, their car, loses a hand, has stumbles into this, you know, I guess a, a funeral home, a funeral parlor, and uh, Bruce Davidson says, I've been waiting for you, you've come to kill me, and tells her about the monkey's paw, which is a story, basically boils down to, be careful what you wish for. So it goes into the past of his wife having the monkey's paw, and I don't want to give too much away. This one's really uh, pretty cool, and the way they shoot it, uh, the way they mingle in the flashbacks with the modern, how they edit it, it looks perfect. Like, they'll be in the scene, and they'll like turn around, and the lighting will change, and then they'll be in the modern time. They'll go from the past to the present very well. Uh, I think that actually was one of the most unique kind of deals they did in this episode and I think it works very well and I think it kind of captures the spirit of Creepshow pretty cool. Uh, The next one is a zombie short. This one's okay. The concept's really fun. Uh, I I shouldn't even told you it was a zombie thing. It's kind of a little spoiler but it's kind of post-apocalyptic deal where you see these two kind of storylines. He's again playing with time in this one as well where we have these people in this kind of prison and they're 
kind of going to go up to their doom. You kind of get the idea and you figure out what they did through, you know, the, through the flashbacks and everything like that. And then they get just desserts, which is also very creep show. This one's fun and decent. I just wish there was more kind of uh, gory carnage in here. And I think it would have been a little bit better. Um, the acting is pretty fun in this one. I really like the guy who played the mayor. He cracked me up and David Arquette also has a small little role in here. So that one's also decent. This is a solid episode. I don't think it's as good as the Scarecrow episode or the DJ Qualls, um, those, those segments, DJ Qualls, little creatures one, but I think that they're up on the, you know, the top part. I think that they're pretty good. So I really like what, uh, you know, Shudder's been doing with the creep show show, and I'm looking forward to more episodes. Maybe continue since we didn't get tales in the crypt. I'm more than happy to have a creep show show because I love anthology horror. And, uh, that's kind of really the only television I used to be hooked on when I was a kid was anthology horror and like comedy TV shows, sitcoms like Seinfeld and, and cartoons like the Simpsons. That's all I used to watch really. You know, I, I don't, I don't care for TV particularly. That's the kind of TV I gravitated towards, especially growing up watching like Ray Bradbury theater and Albert Hitchcock hour and stuff like that. And Twilight Zone, just seeing episodes as a kid and you vaguely remember them. And then you go and revisit them. You're like, Oh, I remember these. And I, I tales of the crypt was always a soft spot to me. So I always love that kind of television, but I guess we're going to hop into the first review. Uh, the first review is from Mondo Macabro. And this one is a very special one. I love what Mondo does. And, uh, this is one of their, their gems. This is kind of a hidden gem. This is 1975, The Killer of Dolls. Okay, this is a Spanish movie, and it's pretty much a lost movie. I had never really heard about it. I might have seen the cover in kind of like some bootleg kind of a world, but I never really checked it out. It's by the director of Graveyard of Horror, which I haven't watched. It's supposed to be kind of a cheesy kind of Spanish horror film as well. This one is not cheesy. This one is in insane. It stars David Roca, who is actually in The Traveler with um, Paul Nashi, which he has a really nice role in that. And that's a pretty cool movie where kind of Paul Nashi is this kind of devil-like figure who pretty much kind of, uh, you know, brings uh, David Roca in and makes him just brings him down a path of evil which I really enjoyed that one so this movie this movie literally to me is like I've seen all these ingredients from different movies and the way they cook it and make it and present it is literally like no other movie but it's all the ingredients are there it's part you know it's psychosexual kind of character study psychological character who's like tortured by their sexuality and their duality and with themselves it feels like psycho it feels like maniac and tourist trap even though it was before those it's definitely heavily inspired by psycho so let me get into this we have this character uh who's the uh, david roca who's the gardener's son gardener's son he works for like the countess and this uh the, her husband kind of like taking care of the garden but he really doesn't do anything his parents do everything and you realize this guy is damaged right away he um he sees doll women as dolls and he hates dolls for some reason because it stems from his childhood where he has this duality kind of sexuality where I don't want to give too much away but involves, you know, uh, something with his sister. And I don't want to go further than that because it's kind of a reveal and it's kind of, it's very interesting actually. Um, so this he's, it's, there's no secret that he is the killer. And pretty soon he starts dressing up in this weird doll mask and wig. So you can kind of gather where it's going from there with a psycho type deal. There is an intense performance by David Roca. It's, it's amazing. Actually, it's almost like over the top, but feels real. And it's like that one of those great performances you see in like uh, one of these movies where like you have like Joe Spinell where he has in Maniac where he has these kind of childlike qualities at the same time and these weird kind of sexual kinks as as well. 
and he ends up starting a relationship with the Countess's daughter, and the Countess is trying to seduce him at the same time. Meanwhile, he's going in the garden at night where people are always constantly breaking in and having sex, and he is killing them when he gets a chance, but he sees them as dolls. So this kind of mixes this weird reality in here where he sees people as dolls, so you kind of plays with it. He also, so you don't know what's real or what's fake, so they set up the twist pretty well. Of course, a couple twists in this one's like I said, the atmosphere is really awesome. Uh, the psychological stuff is perfect. There's dream sequences. There's uh, freakouts. Uh, I love this movie to be honest. There's like I said, good atmosphere in the garden, and at the end, it kind of goes insane, and we have all this like fog coming in and just insanity. And there's actually a couple funny moments in here too, how it presents the rich, and that's definitely a giallo trope or a gothic trope as well, how it presents them as kind of scummy, sleazy people. So it has all these like tropes of uh, you know proto slasher, giallos gothic stories, psychological, psychosexual stuff. It has all this stuff. And uh, Kat Ellinger was saying this in the commentary too and, and I watched it the first time and I was, I was like yeah, this is such a mixture of stuff and I've seen this like stuff like it but I've never seen it all mixed into a movie like that and I was really happy with it. I was really impressed with it. It looks good. It sounds good. It's a lost movie and they did a damn good job with it. It's got a great performance. I never, like I said, heard of it and that's the most exciting stuff to me is when I get to see something, a gem from the 70s especially Euro Horror that I never heard of. It is in Spanish. There is no uh, uh, English dub. So there's that. But also there's an interview with David Roca and he's pretty open about his life. Uh, and on here as well, there's another commentary besides Cat Ellinger. If Cat Ellinger wasn't enough, and, and there's another one. And uh, I believe there's also a two-part feature, which featurette, which is really cool, about uh, a story and kind of goes over Spanish horror and then talks about Killer of Dolls, a.k.a. The Killing of Dolls. And then it has even another title besides that. So, um, bravo to Mondo Macabro. This is probably one of my favorite releases of the year and uh, one of the most interesting titles I've seen in a long time uh, for horror movies.
Okay, the next one is from uh, Epic Pictures, and this is Candy Corn. I was interested in this one because it looked like it freaking had a great Halloween feel. I love Halloween movies. This is by the director um, who did uh, Honey Spiders, which I saw a little uh, while ago when it came out. And I wasn't too thrilled with that one, although I do think that it did have a nice Halloween feel as well. Candy Corn has some genre uh, favorites in here. Courtney Gaines from Children of the Corn and The Burbs. It has, um, geez, what is his name? Moeller is his last name. And he's in stuff like 31 and... Uh, he was just in Three from Hell, and I forgot to mention that he was in it. He was pretty good in Three from Hell. I also forgot to mention Bill Olbers Jr. was in Three from Hell, and I should be shot for that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Let's get back to Candy Corn. Also in here is Tony Todd as a small role, and of course, PJ Soul. So it has the genre favorites, and, and a lot of times people will be like, oh, they kind of like go to do the convention circuit, and sometimes, I'm not saying these people do, because they obviously, I, they don't, but a lot of, you know, convention people will just give in like a, a, a lazy performance. They'll be there for like half a day, and it won't be very good. Um, um, to be honest, in, in independent movies, that does happen a lot, and uh, some people will be turned away by that. But honestly, I think Courtney Gaines and uh, Moeller and PJ Souls are probably the strongest part of this movie, um, to be honest. I think that their performances are the strongest. What we have here is a mentally handicapped uh, character. Oh, geez, I can't believe I forgot. Um, Big Braden from The Greasy Strangler is also in here in kind of a weird offbeat role. Like he kind of, I could see this guy being like a character actor for the next couple decades because he's really entertaining just to watch on screen and enjoyed him in this one as well well but we have this group of kind of uh young 20s maybe they're way too old to be doing what they're doing but every halloween they played a prank on this local kind of uh mentally handicapped person and the prank goes wrong he's now working at this like kind of this traveling circus i don't even know it's traveling it's kind of weird but this circus where a muller runs it and so they go to the circus and uh, these carnies kind of take care of their their own. They're definitely a family. So what happens is they end up trying to pull a prank on him. He fights back and he dies. So immediately in the beginning of the movie, most of the main characters uh, have killed a mentally handicapped kind of guy. So I'm like, oh, so now it's just me kind of be waiting for these people to die because at that point I don't care. I, I really don't. So that's what happens. Uh, then the mentally handicapped characters brought back to life by Moeller in some, some weird kind of pumpkin like ritual where he's wearing like a pumpkin mask and he goes around and he kills them off. The kills in the movie, um, the after effects are really good. They'll show like a spine ripped out afterwards and all those effects are pretty good. But the killings themselves are kind of just face mushing against the wall and kind of blood and not really particularly great. There's some CGI blood splatter. So the after stuff looks good, but um, the actual act of the killing isn't really anything special, to be honest. And I don't want to be too negative about that. I really like the production design in the movie. I thought that it looked slick. I thought it looked like Halloween. I thought that the sets looked nice and I thought that their locations were really good um, the idea is fine enough it's very simple and uh, but for the most part um, some of the, the main characters that weren't like the genre guys were really poor uh, and I don't want to be too negative the main bully in this movie I thought that he was awful awful like enough to make me call him out by character or name uh, to a distracting level to be I don't want to you know be too negative you know indie actors and everything like that but still I thought that he was poor and I thought his performance was distracting maybe it was how he was written but I did not like that character did not like that performance at the end there's a big dramatic scene where he's on the phone and I feel like um that maybe they turn the music up over his his like dialogue so it would be more powerful than his performance and that's what it feels like to a certain extent without being too negative i want to move past that part but uh, all in all i i mean it's not absolutely awful i i didn't particularly enjoy it myself um I felt that it just kind of was, uh, to me, after I realized who the characters were going to be, I just, I'm not one to watch, I'll have all the main characters kind of be worthless to me. I, I didn't really care about them. 
So there's that. Uh, like I said, it's okay. It's not really my 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 kind of deal. The director watching the special features, he seemed full of energy and enthusiastic. And I don't think the movie's lazy or anything like that. I just didn't particularly care for some of the writing, if that makes sense. Like, uh, you know, so I didn't care for the story. So if you if you do that, then you can see like there's some quality in there, but there's also some you know dialogue and acting choices that I didn't particularly like. Um, it's up to you guys. I I think that uh, there's an hour and like 50 minute making of which is really cool and there's a commentary on here as well so it's not a lazy release either it, it looks pretty good and sounds pretty good um the surround sound was was booming so uh yeah candy corn Steve on this one. You guys are unreal. This year, it's gonna be bigger and better. We're gonna wait for him back behind their trailers. When he gets there, we'll rough him up. Hey, fella. Strip him down. And then let him run down the midway like the freak show that he is. For thou who sleeps in stone and clay, heed this call, rise and obey. Pass again through the mortal door. Come to thou and walk once more. What did you do? This town has created a witch hunt and they are coming for the freaks. So, let's give them what they came for. What the hell is going on? No one wants to be out after dark. Where the hell is he? Okay, the next one is also from Epic Pictures, and this is Harpoon. And uh, I had not really heard much about this. I think I saw the trailer or a glimpse of the trailer, and it was kind of like a horror kind of thriller comedy. So I put this in, and I was like, okay, here we go. And almost right off the bat, uh, I was laughing. It's hysterical. Uh, the characters are great. There's really only three characters in the whole movie. All are well-established, all set up jokes well, and they bounce off each other and have great chemistry. Um, the only actor I really recognized in here was the the lead from Turbo Kid. He's one of the main characters in this movie as well. So we have these three kind of, uh, we have this narration that pops in here and there, kind of setting up the movie and saying who these characters are and putting his own insight in there which is really funny so these three characters obviously have a history and it's deep and there's something going on between them they decide to go on this kind of boating trip for the day uh and they get stranded on the boat so more things come out about their personality about their past and and, and they let you have hints throughout the entire thing. There's a couple twists and turns I didn't see coming. The banter back and forth is really what makes this movie special. The performances, especially by uh, the character who played Richie, is probably one of my favorite performances of this year. I thought the way he delivered his lines, I thought his kind of assholishness was perfect. And as it goes on, you realize all these characters really aren't particularly likable, um, except for the female character. Like I said, I can't remember any of their names except Richie, which is pretty bad. But I, I enjoyed all their performances. And the twist 
at the end was so perfect and I was like that is so great because they set that up every way they could have the camera work is nice as well they'll have like these kind of zoom ins or like I guess they they probably are dolly shots because they're pretty smooth uh, unless it's a steady cam but regardless they they use their space well and I know that it was shot in two places an exterior was shot in a nice nice outside location because it's beautiful and there was an interior was a boat on a set I believe uh, in was it Canada or somewhere somewhere cold regardless but it's kind of surprising how they do that intermingling just between shots going exterior interior I didn't notice I really thought it was an interior of the boat it didn't make me think I wonder where they shot that it just played which is very much a compliment because it feels very natural um, this one's really tremendous I think people will enjoy it it's funny it's uh, witty it's clever there's constant like reoccurring jokes which show I think uh, you know uh, kind of a intelligent humor and uh, it is there's some silly humor as well but it's really in the delivery and the timing and it's really perfect uh, there is a couple commentaries on here one where the director takes mushrooms there's a few deleted scenes and the movie runs in an hour and 22 minutes it's brief it gets in it doesn't wear out it's welcome and this is one of these deals where I, I'm going to put this in for 15 minutes before I go to bed and I'll watch the rest tomorrow no 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 it captivated me because you know I hate breaking up movies but sometimes you have to so I put it in and it caught my attention I watched the whole thing before I went to sleep went to work the next day tired but it was worth it really loved it uh highly recommended looks good sounds good um the narration's funny it adds a nice little quality in here and there's a nice little tale about who is it richard parker that i really liked hearing but uh highly recommended one of my favorite movies of the year and a nice release too This is Jonah. This is Jonah's best friend, Richard. And this is Richard's long-term partner, Sasha. <sighs> and with that, just like they always did, our trio returned to their instinctual roles. Okay, let's make a deal. I grovel and pamper you guys unconditionally, and you just try to remember a time before I went eight. I want a free punch. Yes, deal. Why are you encouraging this? <laughs> You know, someone once told me, the sea finds out everything you've done wrong. And these three have been pushing their luck from the very start. <laughs> we need to make a better deal. We need to promise not to kill each other. Because oh. when I think of you, That can't be good. Sasha, what do we do? We gotta stop the infection from reaching his heart. You mean... Okay, the next one is from Scream Team Releasing, and it is The Witching Season. Yeah, I like that cover art. It's pretty cool. I did a couple Scream Team releasings beforehand, and um, I like some. I didn't like some. 1031's pretty cool. The Barn is great, which I didn't review. And this one I actually dug, too. And oh, I forgot Dreaming of White Doomsday is a good one, too. So this one I actually dug. This is five shorts. It's an anthology, I guess, sort of, but there's no wraparound. It's made by all the same group of filmmakers, so they all have the same kind of artistic look. They all take place on Halloween, and they all kind of intermingle with the stories. You'll turn on the news, so you'll see like part of that, you know, 
the same newscast. So they are in the same universe, which I liked. Um, the one real complaint I'll say about this movie is there's a little opening of the witching season. Like these broadcasted on like the internet or something like that. And there's like a 30 second opening, which is great. It looks great. And it shows all the like elements of Halloween going around the town. But they show it in front of all five shorts. And I think that's just kind of... Eh, you know, I mean, the movie is short. And it's like an hour and 22 minutes, but I don't need to see it every time. Like if I watch 30 episodes of Tales of the Crypt in the Row, I don't need to see the, you know, the go through the house every time. So that's my one complaint about the movie. And it's more the disc and to self. But that besides that, I don't really have any complaints. It's five stories all taking place on Halloween. They range not in quality, really. I mean, they're all pretty decently made, but they range in favorites for me. It's just kind of what I'm going to like and not. The first story is a kind of a nice little play on, a, you know, stalker on Halloween. I thought that had a nice little kick at the end. It was okay. The next one is a, a you know, kind of somebody leaves some things behind and it's an evil doll. This one was probably the weakest for me. It just didn't go that far, far, but it did have a nice little twist in there. It just, it kind of very, you know, bland in a way. The next one is kind of like about night terrors and this one's really well done and really creepy. The way they use shadows and the way that it just unfolds is very short and it, Kind of scary as hell. Um, the next one is the best. It's the one, uh, one about a writer who breaks into this haunted house to get some inspiration and write a horror story in the haunted house. This one plays on a lot of the tropes of horror stories while he's writing them. It's very funny. Uh, the actor in this, who appears in like all the shorts, um, has some great facial expressions. He absolutely is, is golden. And he's writing these stories, and we get to see them come to life. He goes with a mass killer, with a with a circus clown, with a scarecrow. And they're all like generic stories, and he hits like a super stupid moment or a trope, and he's just like... And he just deletes the page. But of course, he starts to write about the house he's in, and that kind of triggers something, a memory maybe. But I don't want to spoil it. It opens up with a narration that he says what happened in this house, and it ends with that narration as well, and it ties things together. This is a really strong short. This one's really, really good. And uh, the last short was this one. This one's blanking on me. Oh, this one is about, you know, some trick-or-treaters kind of attacking. This one I thought was okay. It was decent. It was, again, probably the second weakest. Not not my favorite. But I do think this is um, all of them are decent watches and they're good around for Halloween. You put it on in the background. It's pretty perfect for that kind of deal. Um, there's no features on the DVD, but I really would recommend checking this out at least for the writer one. That one's very clever. Um, the music was by Slasher Dave. At least the theme music was. Um, the cinematography solid. You'll see all the same Halloween decorations in this. And then yeah, at first you're like, what? What, why? But then you're like, oh, it's a small town. It's the same small town. They probably all bought the same freaking Halloween decorations. So, and I know there's a gag where they have this little witch that's in the opening. It's got to be in all five of the shorts. I think I saw her every single time. That's kind of like a little, probably a gag to the director and filmmakers that they're like, we're going to put this little witch in every single thing, this little Halloween decoration. But I'd recommend this one. Perfect Halloween viewing. And uh, that one short was really, really great. I think super well made and cracked me up. And I really liked the actor in that. I thought he was really good and, and he was fun. He played like 20 roles in all these movies. So yeah.
are you talking to? Princess. Okay, the next one is going to be a doozy, and this is the Ring uh, collection. This has the Ring, which I reviewed last week, uh, the Ring 2, Spiral, and Ring Zero. Like I said, I had never really dived into the Ring, so I, I watched them all for the first time uh, last week, the Ring, and then these three this week. So bear with me. This is all off the top of my head, recalling of Japanese ghost stories that are all kind of mixing together. They're all made around the same time. They all have the same reoccurring kind of characters, and they all follow the same storyline somewhat. So I'm going to start with Spiral, which was the original sequel to the Ring. It played in theaters with the Ring uh, originally. So this one was made back to back with the, uh, the ring and it was actually our uh, the spiral was the original story the original book the ring there was a book and then spiral they were both written by the same writer and there's kind of follows and I guess this one follows the book fairly well um Okay, this one starts off really dark and really, really kind of gloomy. And I was kind of surprised it started off with like, we have a pathologist who has a haunted past. He, he has some lost loved ones. And every morning, in the, right in the beginning, he wakes up and thinks about suicide. He ends up going to work and... Through, uh, he realizes he has to perform an autopsy on an old friend of his that is the um, boyfriend who died in the ring. So that opens everything up. Then we have his girlfriend coming in, looking into everything, and they start to look for all the people who are originally around the ring. And it becomes, again, all these ring movies have reporters, and they all tie in, and they all become some big mystery. And I thought that was kind of strange that it's like we just did a mystery kind of story with the last one, and all these seem to be a mystery to un, you know, veil the mystery of the movie and, and whatnot. And I think that's kind of cool in a lot of ways, but also it becomes a little repetitive and it kind of makes them all bleed together in, in a way. But this and Ring 2 could not take place in the same universe because they kind of go different ways with a lot of the characters. Um, this one I thought was really unique and it was more about, you know, what you would do for a lost loved one. And these all start off like kind of small and personal stories and then they grow into these giant sci-fi kind of ideas that are just hard to grasp your mind around, to be honest. I'm thinking, what? What is going on? Oh, they're doing that? And I really like something about this movie that I thought was super unique, that the virus, they start to look at it as a virus kind of way, because they're pathologist. Him and his partner start to look at it as a virus, and they find the um, original report of the main character in the first rings, um, notebook, her, her diary about everything, and some people are starting to read that, a reporter, the other pathologist, and some people start getting sick, and they didn't watch the tape. They start to get sick in a way. So, and they start to discover that this thing is not only through the tape. And I thought that was a really great way to carry on uh, Sadako's curse and everything like that. And interesting as well. And the way this ends, it's just completely insane. No one could watch this movie and not have read, like known anything about it and say, well, oh, this is going to happen. No one's going to be able to predict this. This movie is very unpredictable. It has this like dark and gloomy kind of look to it. I really like the lead guy in the movie. And uh, it brings back the boyfriend or the husband from the original one. And uh, it, it kind of ties some loose, not loose ends, but it ties some characters 
characters' fates and stuff like that. I thought that this one was probably my favorite out of the three, to be honest, out of all the three on here. Spiral, I thought it was the best made, and I really like this one. I'm going to probably find a trailer for you on that. なんかいきなり怖いお話とか見て、その子は彼氏と車で<笑> あのビデオを殺せないお前なのかお前がやったのかじゃああのビデオはこの世のものじゃない私は呪いをかけられたんだリングラセンこの恐怖二本続けて見れますか Hey guys, uh, Jeremy's going to sit in and help me with Ringu or Ring 2. Um, you know, it's funny as I went to review this box set and I had like 12 movies this week. So like I went to recall Ring 2 and I couldn't remember all that much about it. And that's not saying it's a horrible movie. It's saying that all the Ring movies kind of bleed together. The box set actually has Spiral, Ring 2 and Ring 0. Uh, Spiral was made and released with the original Ring as a double feature. It was the second novel in the series. Um, I don't think Spiral took as well as the Ring, so they went ahead and made the Ring 2. Both are direct sequels to the first movie. Both change storylines, and they have different characters die at different points. So we're going to start with the Ring 2, even though Spiral came chronologically first. Okay, um, the Ring 2 picks up pretty much where the first one left off, following like a, a lot of the same two. characters. Yeah. yeah, And this one follows the story, follows more so um, the... Uh, girlfriend of the husband, right? Her yes. colleagues. And she's looking into the case. And another reporter gets involved with her, is my understanding, right? Yeah, another reporter and the... Well, the police chief. He's not major, yeah, not but he's major. a good chunk of it. So they track down... I can't believe the... Remember, I don't remember the main girl's name, the reporter, and her son. Mm -hmm. Or basically, you know, they leave kind of off at a cliff note in the original one. They track them down... And uh, somewhat, and that, that's kind of the story. But it gets really crazy and weird. Like the son is being affected by Sadako's curse, like partially inside of him, and he has these telekinetic powers and shit. Mm -hmm. It's um. So in the original ring, okay, they it, it ends with the mother and her son, and like the only way they they can break the curse is somebody else watch the tape. So it ends with her calling her father. Yes, and then this opens up with the father being dead, and yeah. We're trying to figure out what happened. Clearly, he's still related to, you know, like it would be yeah. his great niece or whatever. And what's really weird is Spiral it has these characters come back too, a lot of them. But they mm -hmm. died at different times. Like the father had killed himself instead. So when you go to recall all these, there is already a Spiral review shot and a Ring Zero. Although they are sloppy. Because like I said, these movies work best when I get to somebody else had watched them and I can talk them out. Because they bleed together. Mm -hmm. All Three of these Ring movies bleed together, and it's so weird, especially when there's two. Spiral, it's like Ring, and then Spiral, and then Ring uh, 2, and then Ring 0 is a prequel to that. It's just like, you can have two different trilogies and two different outcomes for these characters. It gets really kind of clusterfucked. So, so it is then the chronologically, like, like actually watching, we should watch Ring 0, Ring... 
in order that happens, you could watch Ring Zero, Ring, and then Ring Two and Spiral are their own. Yes. It's like a, like a divergent. Yes. So it's like the Zelda timeline, guys. Or it's like the Halloween timeline, somewhat. I don't know about Halloween. Like timeline. Halloween One. And oh, then we have yeah. the direct sequel 2, and then 3 was its own deal. Mm-hmm. And then 4 is a direct sequel to 2, 5 is, 6 is, and then seven's like, no, we're a direct sequel to 2, and eight's a direct sequel to 7. And then we have Rob Zombie's two movies, and then this new one was like, no, fuck that, I'm a direct sequel to 1. And then, uh, I think Texas Chainsaw does it too. Texas Chainsaw's a goddamn mess, so the Ring series is kind of a mess in the same way. But the, the Ring series, like, as opposed to Halloween and Texas Chainsaw, which happened over two decades... Several decades. Ring happened within like two months. Yes, so it's yeah. just kind of confusing. And recalling these, if you watch them back to back, you're like, oh shit, I can't remember what. And Spiral starts off so different and so unique than the other ones. It starts off dark with suicide and everything like mm-hmm. that. So I was really impressed by Spiral. And then in the end gets crazy. And the Ring 2 gets crazy too. It starts to like get bigger and like the whole pool and the scientist, that's this mad scientist thing. And the pool reminds me of It Follows as well. So, man, I don't really know what to think of Ring 2. I like it. I think it's good while watching it. And, again, I'm always confused that they keep turning these into mystery stories. All I of mean, them. All of them reporters. All of the mystery stories. All of them trying to figure out the curse. Even though we figured out what the curse does in the first movie. And then it's like, no, it does more things, too. It's, right. it's like constantly repeating it. Like an Austin Powers 1 and 2 kind of deal, but adding something in. I, I think it would help to understand, like, what... Like, where these are coming from in regards to, like, the, the novels that existed prior to Well, Spiral it? was actually the novel. Spiral Ring, was... and then Spiral was actually the novel. Not Ring 2. Right, right. Ring but 2 is not... The original not the director novel. of Ring did Ring 2. Right. Uh, but, you know, and I think there's, like, like four or five novels, novels in yeah. the series. And, you know, I think maybe only two of them got made then. What was the funny thing is, like I said, Spiral starts off different. It has different outcomes for the characters. But mm-hmm. a lot of them still died, no matter what. Right. And the end of Spiral is just like end of the world kind of crazy. While Ring Zero, it paints the character like Sadako in in like a sympathetic light and changes some things too. So Mm -hmm. they're all really kind of muddled together in a lot of ways. Sadako, I think, means like innocent one or purity, pure something. And how did the curse work in part two? They changed it around a bit, right? No, I think the curse is more or less the same. It's just like the boy somehow became a Sadako. Yeah. Did he become a Sadako or did he he, he had the he, he had, had the psychic powers from because the father. his father, yeah. Um it has the ESP angle too like a lot of these. Right. And oh I would call them empaths really. They're kind of like empaths. Supernatural impasse where they can feel stuff. But he becomes almost like a Marvel character. Oh, yeah. He's, like, like blasting force fields and, like, knocking people down. Like, stopping um, their hearts. Yeah, I think when, when the mom, what happens to the mom, like, like that kind of got to me. That was a little fucked up, especially after... And, and Spiral, she's, she's too. Oh, really? So was the boy. Oh, okay. Spoiling, kind of spoiling. These are pretty old movies, but yeah. still. It's just twisted. Like, I think Spiral's darker, and this one's more commercial. That's why I think they went with this series more. Mm-hmm. I think they're both worth watching. I think they're both good. I think Ring Zero is probably the weakest. And it's not horrible, either. I didn't watch that one. So you watch this one. I would recommend checking this one out. I think the first one's vastly superior, though. I don't even say vastly. They're very similar. It's funny. It's just that the Ring at the time was so perfect, because you never see anything like it. Like, I, I feel like when I, when I was watching Ring and then watching Ring 2, it kind of felt like the change in tone was very similar to, like, Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 to me. Yeah. It was just very, like... Hellraiser is, like, very dark, very serious. And personal. And personal. And then, like, 
Hellraiser 2 if it's like Crazy Misadventure and The Labyrinth of Dreams. Fantasy, and, grotesque Yeah. And, and, and I feel like, like this had the same thing where it's like, it's the same thing as the first one. It's just everything is like on steroids. Like the boys, like they work up the ESP angle to like like this huge thing. Um, the way that the tape works is, is this way. Um, like... Like, if you survive the tape, I guess... You have to pass it on. You have to pass on, but you become, like, the medium of passing it. So, like, the girl in the insane asylum, when yeah. she gets near the TV, she somehow starts the TV, or causes the TV to yeah. play the video, so everybody in the nursing home yep. sees the... Yeah, that's the girl from the first one who witnessed her friend die. So anyone right. who witnesses a murder becomes kind of infected in some yeah. sort of weird partial, like, hell where you're in, like, limbo. Yeah. So all that's insane and weird. And, and Spiral does that, too. Mm -hmm. Spiral is interesting because the journal that the reporter wrote, people start reading that, mm -hmm. and the virus passes through the journal. Right. They call it a virus in the second one, even though it's not. The curse passes through the journal. It, it develops as something different. And I'm just weird how, like, they had to, like, treat it like a virus in these movies that mm -hmm. it advances, it mutates. Well, in, in the novels, it, it is a virus. Okay. In, in the novels, it, it's, um, as you read the novels, you, you realize that this isn't in the real world. This is in, like, a computer simulation, kind of like Matrix or, like, Reboot. And, like, Sadako is actually a malicious computer virus that is trying to reach its way into the real world. That's in. <laughs> but, they all but, get they all get whacked out of their minds at the end. They all start small and personal, mm -hmm. and then like like two spiral and this are like they get huge. And Ring Zero, you're like these like started. It's like a Marvel movie cycle through the whole thing, like small and personal, and boom, just blows up. Like all the Marvel movies are too big, is what I mean. Like I wish they these little other ones stayed smaller because I think Spiral's damn near perfect until the ending. Well, I, th I think that's and just the nature the of like franchises in general. You know, Marvel happens. I mean, Jason goes into space and into Manhattan, you know, I'm like, he was in Manhattan for two and a half minutes. He was getting there. He had to go to space first. <laughs> he went to uh, space after. Well, I don't remember. How is he going from Manhattan down to Fort Lauderdale in Florida? He um, was never in Florida. Well, how is he getting into space? Why does he have to go to space to Fort Lauderdale to get to space? Isn't that where they launched for rockets at? It was the future when he went to space. Get with the program. Well, they cut out a big chunk of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, let's see that movie. Probably follow the Manhattan Between Manhattan footage. and space. That's yes. the one we want to see. Um, but, you know, I think that's just the nature of, like, franchises in general. Yeah. Like, like you know, the longer they go on, the, the more big and complex they get because they have to somehow incorporate all these little tiny plot threads that they had going on. It's like, well, if we just make this so it's just a giant, like, yeah. monstrosity of, like, all of our ideas we couldn't do before, then nobody can say that we're, like, having these gaping plot holes. Just confuse it and make it really weird. People are like, I don't get it. It's crazy. Yeah, it's art. It's art. They are confusing, especially if you watch all of them. You'll have trouble recalling all three of them. Mm -hmm. All four of them back to back. What what scares come from this one? I think the first one's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I recommend that one. I think the second one's worth checking out. Spiral's the second best, and then a ring. So ring, spiral, ring two, ring zero. All worth watching, though. And ring is damn great. What do you think? I want to saw ring and ring two. What do you prefer? Um, I think ring. Yeah, by a lot. Yeah, I'd say I, I think I that Ring better. Two is, is just a little bit cheaper. That direct sequels are, are always seem inferior to me than, you know, like Hellraiser, Hellraiser Two. I'll always prefer Hellraiser. Yeah. I'll always prefer Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles over Secret of the Ooze. Secret of the Ooze is terrible. I you know I think that's just how it is. Like it's like you, you get like a good Disney movie. 
And when you get like, you know, Aaron Returns to the Sea or Lion, Lion King 2, it was like, like 45 King minutes two, long. And then they're like, and wait, wait, Lion King 1 and a half because we messed up on two. Right. We, we're sorry, everyone. And uh, and I think I think that's um, just the nature of movies in well, general. The funny thing is Spiral was made with, the, they released them both together. Mm-hmm. And then when they went back, they were like, no, we were released Ring 2, which is so weird to me. Like they reneged on the title, renegotiated on what they originally put out. Mm-hmm. So it's strange to me, but I, I think they're worth checking out. Yeah, I like how it looks. It looks great. It does look great, and it looks a lot like the first one. They bring back a lot of the same actors. The old man from the village comes back, and he gets his storyline tied mm-hmm. up. And the pool is straight. It follows. Took that pool scene to a T. Yeah, because I know nobody stole it from Chud too. But <laughs> all right, let's wrap it. Okay. <laughs> Okay, the last one in this deal is Ring Zero. And Ring Zero, this is uh, takes place 30 years prior to the events of The Ring. And we have another reporter kind of digging into this. They have this weird obsession with reporters in this these movies. Like I said, they're all kind of like these almost like, you know, thriller mystery deals. So what happens is they kind of dig deep into, she tries to figure out about Sadako. And she goes back and it goes back 30 years and starts telling her story. This reporter, well, she goes into like try to find Sadako. This is after the events of when the reporter was killed in the original movie and kind of the tape you learn a lot of this in ring two where the reporter was killed and they she kind of finds sadako at this kind of mental hospital kind of school for the performing arts i don't know what's going on but sadako just wants to be a young actress so she's kind of learning uh the acting trade and she kind of has this romance with a young boy but she's an outcast and she has that weird kind of you know like she obviously has powers and no one really likes her and she still is very dangerous because Sadako can kill people. This is before she was killed and thrown in the well or attacked and thrown into the well. So we have this story about all these kind of people and it makes her sympathetic, which I really don't mind because she is a young girl. It's not like making Freddy Krueger sympathetic or something like that who killed children. But Sadako did kill a bunch of children, but it was a little different because it's kind of a curse and it has a kind of damaged storyline, a damaged life. So basically what happens is she kind of... Uh, it's kind of a tale of what happened to her leading up to everything like that. Um, this one I think is okay. I do think that it kind of gets really silly at the end again, where we learn this kind of twist in here, and I don't necessarily know what the hell is going on, but I uh, at, at one point she kind of lets her powers unleash in the woods, and I thought that was a fairly well done scene. Like I said, these are all perfectly fine movies, and the first one's so strong and really good, but if you watch these back-to-back, they bleed into each other, and it's so hard to differentiate them from each other. 
especially when they all follow the same storyline and they show a lot of the same clips. I, I don't feel that these are very scary in comparison to the first one, to be honest. I think that they all start very compelling, but they kind of lose their steam towards the end. And they're all solid movies, though. I, I won't say they're bad, but Spiral is the best of the bunch. I, I would be happy with just the ring and Spiral, but what we have... And like I said, it starts to get like weirder at the end and it has this twist that I just was like, I don't know how the hell that works, but I do like all the stuff they do in these movies where they go in the well. I think that's interesting. And and I'm kind of go back to Ring 2 a little bit. I really like the stuff where they find Sadako's body and they and they do autopsy on her and her skull's sitting there and it ties into like one of the characters from the first one, the old man who was on the island. So I do like that stuff, um, to be honest. But like I said, these movies, they it's so hard for me to remember. I wish I would have watched these years ago. I feel like they would have so much more of an impact in my head. But like I said, I would recommend recommend checking these out for sure. Uh, definitely pick up the first ring. The first ring was really good. The second one I feel like is okay. It's solid. I think Spiral's pretty good too. And I think Ring Zero is probably the weakest one and I've seen of these. But um, I will probably try to continue with the series and see Sadako 3D and Sadako 3D2 and Sadako versus uh, the you know the Grudge versus the Ring and all that stuff. But I, I wish I could recall more on these movies. And, and like I sit there and I think and I see scenes but I just don't necessarily know which ones they're from which is crazy to me. I and mean, I usually am pretty good あの子の後ろに何かが見える。さだこから離れて。やっぱりさだこはなんか隠してるのよ。あなたたち、井戸の夢を見たでしょ。12年前にお前が殺したのか。カラオラ。あの着物の人。お母さん。さだこ。Okay, the next one is from Arrow Video as well, and it is Flowers in the Attic. Yes, starring Louise Fletcher and uh, Christy Swanson. I had never seen this movie, believe it or not. Yeah. I had heard about it for years growing up. All the, uh, you know, a lot of the girls that I knew would always talk about this one. And some of the, some of the guys too that saw this as young. And this movie had kind of grown like a cult reputation for being campy in, in a way. But uh, watching this, it was a New World Pictures, like made in 87. It was based off a book series that were from 79 that involved like incest and you know, gothic manner and murder and stuff like that. So... This is a really weird movie to me tonally. At points, it feels like this kind of lifetime drama and other times just demented exploitation movie. It's like sweet, like lifetime, like sorrow drama stuff and then exploitation movie half and half. Okay, Flowers in the Attic. Oh, here we go. We have uh, a perfect family, all blonde hair, blue-eyed family uh, that uh, basically loses their father. 
and they have to move in with the mother's parents, but she's been, you know, away from them for so long. The, her father is dying, and the house, the mansion, because they're loaded, rich, rich, rich. The mother is Louise Fletcher. Both of them are super puritanical, religious, and horrible, horrible people. They decide that they don't want to see the children. There's four kids, um, two older, probably like 14, 15, and then we have the two twins who are younger. And they she, um, they went from this loving family. Um, their mom and dad were so perfect to them. And then all of a sudden, they get thrown into this world where they must stay in this attic, in this, this one room, and they're fed once a day. Everybody's horrible to them. Louise Fletcher is a monster. She's definitely recalling her role from One of the Cuckoo's Nest as Nurse Ratchet. She always kind of plays that kind of uh, role in a lot of movies and she's always tremendous at it she's really good at it she's really good in this although the whole movie has this weird kind of campy silly feel but there's it's so cruel and mean at times you almost get kind of like this uncomfortable laughter because you're like this this, it's so ridiculous so what happens is their their quarters get worse and worse while the mother tries to win back her dying father's love so she get put in inheritance but uh you know I guess in this case, greed kind of prevails, and I don't want to spoil too much, but the kids kind of have to survive. They start to get sick. And some really heartbreaking stuff happens, stuff that probably caused a lot of kinder trauma, to be honest. And that's probably why people remember this movie so much. Um, there's a Cat Ellinger interview, I mean, not interview, but commentary on here. That was very fun to listen to. She talks about how a lot of this has, like, those gothic kind of tropes and a lot of those, like, big mansion and things like that. Talks about the book series. There was, like, five of these books and only two of them. You know, there was a, a remake of this later and then, like, a sequel to that were made. But it talks about the differences here and how there's so much more incest in here. And that, and the incest plays into how Louise Fletcher treats the children, and uh, lots of lots of weird kind of stuff going on between the mother and her father, and the brother and sister that are trapped. Um, uh, Louise Fletcher is the highlight in here and if you do watch this movie the ending's ridiculous as it is but watch the alternate ending and I was like oh my god I can't believe they even thought about doing that I almost started I, I laughed I said oh my god what what is this totally what is this movie like seriously especially with that alternate ending it's like it's part like horror movie at the end like slasher but it's also melodrama it's just so weird such a weird tonally creepy uh movie i like how it looked it was a very dark looking movie uh it is enjoyable in a lot of ways and you're pulling for the kids the whole time and some really like sad stuff happens which kind of surprised me but uh all around i enjoyed the movie i like the set design i thought it was pretty good movie it is a new world picture so it adds that kind of exploitation style to it but um there's some nice features on here interview with the cinematographer interview with one of the lead actors and a commentary on here with uh cat ellinger so some good stuff uh the movie i I'm, I'm glad i got to watch and i know a lot of people have seen it before but it was a new one for me as long as you're in this house you will abide by my rules you will not yell or cry or run about but she learnt later on that her initials were used to kind of hide her gender because they thought the book would sell better if people thought it was an, a man who'd written it.
in the attic. Okay, guys, to prepare myself for the uh, Dario Argento show I'm doing on 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, I wanted to watch some Dario myself, so uh, I decided to watch The Cat O' Nine Tales. This is the second of his uh, animal trilogy, first being The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. This is The Cat O' Nine Tales, and the, the third is Four Flies on Grey Velvet. This one was made in 71 after Dario or Dario had a huge hit with Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And these movies, all, all three of his movies, and pretty much all his movies share a lot of themes, which interests me, because... Uh, he's a director that has a lot of the same reoccurring themes and things popping up so I like that it, it, it's interesting for me to watch how he handles them in different movies and things like that and I usually gravitate towards directors like that you know Fulci will do that sometimes a lot of the same things will pop up in his movies when um, Peckinpah Romero they all have these kind of themes and stuff and, and looks to his movies but this is uh, more of a you know a giallo and uh, the funny thing is you watch I watch a lot of giallos and after I watch a lot of them I forget them I, I mix them up all the time but I don't think I could mix up his his, or at least remember a lot of scenes from his. So we have this story. This is kind of a, instead like we have Bird with the Crystal Plumage, we have an American who witnesses a murder uh, when he's not, uh, visiting another country. This one, we have somebody who breaks into this scientific lab and it kills a, a guard so a reporter gets involved. But also um, this blind man, played by Carl Malden, with his little daughter or his niece, uh, she calls him Cookie, uh, accidentally overhear this guy being blackmailed. So they get involved, both the reporter, uh, played by James Franciscus, I believe is his name. The only movie I remember him being in, he looks like kind of Charles Heston. They say in the commentary, I thought the same thing. Um, the only movie I remember him being in is The Last Shark, where it's a pretty hilarious performance where he's talking to a little girl in her deathbed or she's in a coma. It's a really hilarious scene. But that's the only movie I remember him being in off the top of my head. But he's solid in this and he teams up with Carl Malden to try to figure out uh, who's committing these murders. After that one murder, it kind of falls through. We start to realize that there's going to be more murders. So basically, it kind of ties in all the suspects work at this lab they're all kind of trustees or high ranking people at the lab and these people are kind of working with you know studying people's dna and stuff like that so uh, right away i kind of guessed what was going to be going on here when i saw this i was like oh it's got to be this kind of deal with the unfolding of somebody doesn't want something about their genetics being known public and that does kind of happen but i don't want to spoil too much carl bolden's really great in it the relationship with the little girl is really solid and in fact the little girl is actually in cannibal apocalypse she's much older in that movie and she has like this weird affair thing with John Saxton which uh, I, I knew recognized her right away because she has a very a very familiar face so that was cool um they just really don't Dario, Dario makes his giallo so perfect to be honest they're so memorable although they all focus on a certain type of uh, mental illness and certain type of motive for the killer this one stands out a little bit different from a lot of the other ones and I like that um I like the motive of the killer. I know that some people would say that there's not much there, but in a way it's kind of ironic and it makes me laugh without spoiling too much. Uh, I don't want to give it away, but if you think about it, it's kind of ironic and almost kind of really stupid that he did this. And I shouldn't have said he, sorry, because that's most of the time Dario's killers are she's. So, 
And I also noticed a theme with all three of his first movies and a lot of his movies. They have always have like homosexual characters in them and always kind of in a weird way. Like the first one has almost a comic relief, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And then we go into this one and this one has a character who's one of the, uh, you know, persons on the board and they go into this like elaborate, like gay nightclub and high class. And again, Giallo. So we have a lot of high class things going on here. Um, I, 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 so there's that. And then the third one, there's even somebody, there's more, more into it. So like, I like these reoccurring things that he always has with mental illness and you know the rich being kind of seedy and then always these like quirky characters again there's quirky characters in this one that are funny and uh offbeat i think this one's really solid uh it's got a great climax at the very end and the you know the killers in these always get these crazy elaborate death scenes this release actually has a really great commentary with alan jones and kim newman they laugh a lot uh to chat back and forth talk about this movie and how dario really doesn't like it it's one of his least favorites i really enjoyed this one i thought it was great i thought carl molden was great uh it kept me guessing even though uh, i i really didn't i figured what the killer's motives were um but I couldn't figure out which one it was going to be. And pretty much no one really could. There's lots of cool stylized things in here. When he's taking pictures, the reporter of the suspects, it'll it'll bring up uh, the this woman will be telling him who uh, she takes pictures of him. And then later on, he's talking to the daughter of the, you know, the lead of this like lab. They start to have this weird affair. Um, so like he's, she's telling him all the people and they pop up like on pictures who they are and everything like that. And I thought that was really unique. And there was probably one of the best subway scenes in a movie, to be honest. I loved it. Really great elaborate death scene with the subway here. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. I know he uses some cool subway stuff in um, uh, Sleepless later on too. So yeah, this one was uh, one of his best. I really liked it. Uh, I, I don't think it's as strong as, as Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but I think it's close. And I think that it has a lot of memorable things in here. I believe Enyo does the score on here. Uh, it has some nice features on here. Uh, Dardano Sacchietti uh, did the uh, helped write this one, which is kind of weird because he usually worked with Fulci, and I guess they had a falling out after this movie. So yeah, he also worked on Bay of Blood. So this guy, like Dardano, basically wrote or helped write all Fulci's best movies, like Zombie Beyond, all those. I think he even worked on Don't Torture a Duckling, I believe. So yeah, he's a great writer, and it, it kind of shows in this one. But uh, again, I like how this one starts, and I like uh, you know the killer's motives, and it cracks me up. I just think it's really cool movie and the ending's top notch and there's some there's this one's not as like uh the kills aren't as you know as elaborate on some of them. they are but there's not as many of them as they're not as gory as you would think sometimes but it's still a really great one cat on nine tails and it looks freaking great and sounds great too don't tell anybody but i'm the only one who knows what was stolen and i know who stole it now yeah. that to me is one of the the, the best of Argento's uh, death scenes. Yeah. Nine Tails. It's nine times more suspenseful.
Giordani. Speak up. Where are you? Speak up. This is no time to be playing games. Okay, the next one is Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Yeah, this one's from Shameless. This is the third in his uh, Animals trilogy. Okay, and how Bird with the Crystal Plumage on his movies. I'm, I'm going to talk about all three of them together because I, I reviewed Bird a while ago, but it, it's kind of interests me. Is it kind of what interests me how he does the different openings like that, and all his movies have this. They're the same, but they're different, and I like that. So with this one, with Bird. It's a uh, American tourist witnessing a murder and being confused what he actually witnessed. With Cat O'Nine Tales, it's a reporter and someone who overheard something getting involved with the cri- criminal case. And this one opens up in a really great way. It actually, the main character is the killer, or you think they're the killer. Um, this person is kind of, uh, what is it, gaslighting them, following them around. They confront them. Uh, they get an argument. He pushes this, it's actually Michael Brandon from FM, pushes this character in like uh, off a balcony and stabs him on accident with his own knife and some, and he, he thinks he killed him and he looks up and somebody's taking pictures of him with a creepy doll face. So he's immediately blackmailed and this blackmailer doesn't want money. They just want to screw with him and they start to make his life a living hell. He goes to Bud Spencer. Awesome. Yeah. To help him figure out who this person is. And again, it kind of tackles the mental illness. Everybody's like, this person is a paranoid, uh, sociopathic person. And, um, he basically hires a private eye to help him. And the private eye is a very unique and interesting character. He's kind of a flamboyant homosexual character, but he also plays comic relief, but he's also very likable at a point. And like, I, I, and I, I kind of like that because you know usually you know and like the first ones it's like oh there's a you know the one character is just a joke but this character is comic relief but he's actually one of the characters who is is very funny and is interesting he says some really funny things in here he says i've never solved the case so the odds are that i'll probably solve this one i mean how long can i not solve a case right so um yeah there's that and then there's a crazy twist in the movie that happens point way through where you realize oh no something's completely different and again at the very ending when you discover who the killer is there is this kind of nice uh look at mental illness not nice but another statement on kind of mental illness like he's obsessed with those kind of things and of course the science in the last movie was kind of bullshit and in this one the science in is absolutely ridiculous think horror express science when they like cut open the eye and look through it and see the past you're like that's nonsense that happens in here too and I was watching this, I was like, that's complete bullshit. And it's like a thriller movie, like mystery. So you don't really, to let those things slide, you just got to let them slide sometimes. Although on a normal movie, you wouldn't. But this one, I barely let slide. But I still really enjoyed it. I had some characters I really did enjoy. Um, and I like that the idea that they completely switch some of the things like, and, and the first one, the character is an artist, I believe in this one. And then there's a, and a bird. It's an artist who's the main character. The next one is a reporter. And then finally it is a musical artist. So they're always constantly the same kind of like, like come from the same kind of backgrounds. Like he is obsessed with that kind of stuff. Dario used to write for a paper. So he has the reporter and the other one and stuff like that. So I feel like he sees himself as an artist and, and so he can relate to these characters and have like kind of write for these characters and make movies for these characters. 
Um, I, like I said, the ending of this one packs a punch. There's a crazy elaborate death scene, just like his other ones, uh, where the killer gets their comeuppance. And uh, it's actually kind of sad when you find out who the killer is and their motives. It's kind of disturbing in a lot of ways. Uh, Mimsy Farmer's in this as well. Like I said, Bud Spencer and Michael Brandon. So I enjoyed this one. There's a really hilarious kind of character, the mailman, uh, running gag with that. His movies stand out, all his giallos that I've seen, and they're probably some of the strongest. I haven't seen a lot of his latter ones, you know, like uh, do you like Hitchcock or the card player, but I will soon. Uh, but his early stuff is all top notch. And a lot of people say he's had bad movie. You know, uh, he hasn't made a good movie since opera. And the only one that I've seen all his movies up until what, um, geez, uh, I've seen Sleepless and everything before Sleepless. So, and I liked everything except Trauma, which I haven't seen in years. I'd like to revisit. So, like, I don't know. It's just kind of like a director. He loses, you know, his 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 you know his stuff he can make a movie with his his budget stuff like that. But um, I, I thought these were really great, and I think they go together great. Bird, uh, Cat O' Nine Tales, and Four Flies. I think they all belong together. And the reveal at the end, how you figure out who the killer is, I loved it. Even though it's bullshit science, I loved it. It worked so well. Um, there's a couple of crazy murders in here. Uh, again, nothing ever compares with his Suspiria or Tenebrae kills. Those are just so brutal and elaborate that you're like, oh my God, or Inferno. You're just like, those are nuts. Um, they're not as strong as those, but um, I do think that they're really well done. Uh, I, I would recommend checking both of these out. Um, I think they're two of his best, and I don't think there's anything wrong with any of them. They're classics, Stone Cold classics. Uh, the Shameless Disc, it didn't look particularly great. But I think that there's something wrong with this print. I think it's kind of beat up more than a lot of the other. Uh, this one wasn't as taken as well taken care of. But yeah. An evening of darkness becomes an eternity of terror and suspense as a killer stalks the streets of a city in search of unsuspecting victims to quench his never-ending thirst for blood. <laughs> With the police, they found the maid with their throat cut. I would definitely describe it as an extreme case of homicidal mania. The patient was here for three years. It was our opinion that the patient was completely cured. I could tell you now, but I won't. I'll wait. Who's going to help you? An innocent man becomes a target of insanity as he steps into the crosshairs of a homicidal maniac with a need for revenge. Congratulations. You guessed right. The killer's a homicidal paranoid. Cases like that commit the most horrendous crimes for what appear to be the most insignificant reasons. Stop acting like a baby. Stop crying! You hear? I never want to see you cry! What have you done now? You'll end up in an asylum! 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 Baby, it's all a bad dream. I'm scared. What's the matter? What's happening? Look! I'm waiting for someone. Now you go out that door and you run. Four flies on gray velvet. Join us for a journey into the dark and endless caverns of a sick and twisted mind. Join us for a journey into living hell.
summertime. For all who are willing to pay the price, we invite you to go through the mirror of life. Hey guys, what's up? You know what time it is. Hammer time. I should really go get that hammer out of the hallway, shouldn't I? No, we don't need no hammer. Okay. (laughs) Imagination. This one is, what, week 25, 26, but it is, it's a doozy. It's one that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Frankenstein Created Woman, directed by Terrence Fisher. Again, this is the fourth Frankenstein in the series, and the best, by far the best, uh, Peter Cushing comes back, and everybody else in the movie, um, oh, geez, uh, Thorley, Thorley something's in this one as well, and that's pretty much the main cast for me. Uh, how do you want to explain this storyline here? They don't even let you know what's going on, like, Frankenstein burned in the last one. There's no real continuity between these. No, um, it seems like every time they do this, it's just like... They restart. Yeah, it's just a restart. Um... And carry over what they want from the previous movie. Thorley was the mad doctor in, um... Thorley was in the Phantom of the Opera. He was the um, he owned the opera owned the house, opera. and he's also was in uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, as the, the Renfield like type character. Yeah. He's also a Vampire Circus down the line. He's tremendous in this movie. This mm-hmm. time, Peter Cushing has him as a helper, and he also has this kind of like young man who helps them around. Uh, and he's Baron von Frankenstein. It doesn't seem like he's he's known to have a reputation for kind of being. Uh, alchemist and kind of mysterious dark arts witchcraft mm-hmm. but he's not the same frankenstein we know from previous movies that would be ran out of town immediately when he showed up and killed yeah no so, he's, he's so not a villain in this one not necessarily yeah really. so what happens is frankenstein is up to his old experiments this one's a little unique in the very beginning they bring him back to life after being put under for like an hour He's like mm-hmm. frozen and everything like that. So they go to celebrate, and you learn, you meet these characters that are like punk ass kids, rich boys, um, the equivalent to what what decade or what time frame does this take place in? This is like Edwardian. This is like um, no, it's pre Edwardian. It's like Victorian. It's like eighteen ninety. So eighteen eighteen hundred fuck boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what they basically are. They're horrible, despicable people. And uh, the helper, not uh, Thorley, but the other helper is a young man. He has a history with his father. It was like put to death, and it kind of has like a scummy lineage. Yeah. Um. I, before, can, he was. He was. He was guillotined. Yeah. In the opening, the opening scene is the greatest. Oh, like of any Hammer movie. Of any, of all yeah. Time. Like I had to stop it because I couldn't watch it. <laughs> we it had to, was we had to watch it twice. Well, basically, what happens is they bring this old drunkard up to this guillotine, and they they cut to him real quick. He's like, "What's that?" It's like it's like the whole it's like the you know goes through the titles, and it's just the guillotine that they're showing for the whole title sequence. You know, all the credits, and then it falls, and it's like a, an immediate cut to just this drunk. It's like, "What is that?" 
No, he doesn't say what to say. He says, What's that? Yeah. And you can barely understand. You wouldn't understand what he said in the subtitles. Right. And, and that's like, that sets the tone for this movie in a kind of a way because he's the father of the main character. Yeah. And his it's kind of sullied his name and he has a horrible mean streak and he works for Baron Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. He also in love is in love with the innkeeper's daughter. The innkeeper's daughter is physically uh, deformed. Half her body's kind of paralyzed and she has a horrible mark on her face. Mm-hmm. The fuck boys constantly make fun of her. They're just despicable people. The, sh- the innkeeper or the barkeeper, whatever you want to call him, there's always one in a hammer movie, does not want this young man with the criminal family lineage to date his daughter. All right. So you kind of know where this is going to... Actually, you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know. But there's going to be experiments involving the if Dr. Frankenstein. So there is a setup for murder. Somebody's wrongly accused. And then what happens is the most tragic uh, Shakespearean scene in any Hammer movie I've seen. It literally mm-hmm. upset me. It made me sad because I actually started to care for these characters' love with each yeah. other. The, the innkeeper's daughter and the main guy, um, the criminal guy. So I like was invested in their relationship. Um, Peter Cushing's great in this. He's got lots of good quips. And Thorley's mm-hmm. also hilarious as this kind of dumb-witted, drunkard doctor. Yeah, and Th- Thorley is... Um... Eventually, when when they make the you know the woman Frankenstein, um, thoroughly is very like fatherly towards her. Yeah. Um, it's almost almost like a like a cassette and um, that genre relationship where you know it's it's like like he dotes on her and she takes care of him. You know, yeah. you know, thoroughly d- does amazing in this. What happens is I have to kind of spoil this just because um, yeah. he's wrongly accused of the shopkeeper being killed, even though it's the fuck boys. And so he's put to death, and uh, the girl is out of town at the time, and she pulls into town just after going to a doctor to try to help her with her ailment, just in time to see him die. Mm -hmm. This sets her in a frenzy. She jumps and plunges herself into a river and dies. And Peter Cushing's been experimenting with taking out the soul of a body. Because in the first one, he wanted to create life. and the second one, he wanted to do a brain transplant. In the third one, it's kind of creating life again. It's like a rehash. And this mm-hmm. one, he now wants to transfer that soul. Right. So he's obsessed with the soul. So he wants to end up, what he ends up doing is taking the soul from the criminal and putting it in the person that he loved the most in this woman. And it creates this, and and curing her face and everything like that. So she has like an alter ego when she wakes up. She doesn't remember anything. And she has like two personalities in one. It's like this dual thing going on. And at the same time, it's like a trans character in a lot of ways because Mm -hmm. it's a man inside this woman, but she still has the woman's memories deep embedded inside of her. So of course they seek revenge. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the setup and the plot of this one. And of course, the town's folks are kind of upset, and they kind of start to look towards Cushing. And that's all I can really say. Yeah, yeah, they, you know, they accuse like Cushing is, um, like, like the Baron Frankenstein. He's, he's not. I won't say he's evil in this. I mean, yeah, he does like you know the Frankenstein stuff, but like in every every movie we've had so far, like it's like I can't let it be known that I'm Frankenstein. I don't get chased out of here. And in this one, it's like. Maybe he didn't even make Frankenstein in the first place. Maybe he's just... You're not the... sure. Maybe it's a relative of Frankenstein. Yeah. And, you know, and Frankenstein died in the last one. He dies in everyone. He or he almost dies he in almost everyone. He almost dies. But in the last one, it's like, you know, the castle's on fire. He's in there to, you know, stop his creation and... the shows the miniature up in flames in the end. This one turns into kind of a pick-em-off slasher movie for a while. Yeah. But with a great motive. And you're actually rooting for... The Frankenstein, the woman. Yes, yeah, you are. I loved Absolutely. her in it. 
And uh, I actually, like I said, I, I was really sad what happened to her in the movie, and mm-hmm. it actually packs an impactful punch. It looks freaking gorgeous, too. Yes, this is really probably pretty. Shaw Factory's best-looking Blu-ray of the bunch. Mm-hmm. It, they did a really good job with it. I thought it looked amazing. And I don't know if that's just the movie itself. I think this is a 20th Century Fox one. Yeah. I think it looks great. I think that uh, everything looks great. It doesn't look cheap at all. Mm-hmm. Kind of like The Witches was the previous one, and that one looked yeah. like it had a budget. So did this one. And uh, I think it's directed well. I think there's lots of nice, witty, funny lines and mm-hmm. dialogue. And I think it's set up, and it, it plays off really well, and um, it pays off really well. And I think that them tackling this whole idea of having a man's soul inside of a woman's body, this weird kind of mixture of you don't really know who they are at any given time is really awesome and different. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's a smaller cast, um, and everybody does fantastic in it. Yeah. Um, the the rich kids are... Despicable. Despicable, but they... There's Perfect. a scene where um, they're taunting the girl outside her window, and he's, like, singing the songs. It's so well done. It... And, and the way he does it, because they're always constantly drawn, <laughs> it, it's so perfect. I don't remember the song he sings, but it's something along the lines of... Don't worry, you soon be dead. And even in, let's say that's the ugliest angel I've ever saw or something mm-hmm. like that. It's just, it rhymes. It's really perfect. Yeah. But I was so glad that they got their comeuppance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because so many of these movies, these guys are like the guys from Hounds of Baskersville, like those mm-hmm. assholes in the beginning of that movie, or the guys from Plague of the Zombies that are really that kind of hammer character where it's like, I'm rich and a complete utter piece of shit that has no responsibility for, you know, anything. Yeah, and, and a lot of times in, in these movies previously, like, You'd see those characters, but nothing would really happen to them, per se. Nothing that was, like, significant. It's like, they were pricks. Then you find, okay, now they're just being used by the big bad guy. Well, also, at the time, um, it's funny, because we watched Harpoon. Mm -hmm. And that's what he says to that one rich guy. You've never had to work a day in your life. And that's just, like, watching, like... Rich, spoiled people get killed in movies is so, so... It feels so good. It's so mm-hmm. cathartic. Yeah. I know that's sick to say. But just seeing rich or spoiled people in general that don't do anything are just fun to watch them get taken down a peg in a movie. And it's great mm-hmm. in Harpoon, uh, and it's great in this. And this mm-hmm. is probably one of my favorite Hammer ones. It's up there. It's, I don't think it's reached my level of like love that like Catermass had, but it's, it's up there. Do you have the uh, book? No, I didn't read the book. We left the book. Yeah. There's going to be a fast-forward segment here, but I'm at four out of five stars. I'm at, like, um... I'm at four stars. Okay. Yeah, four stars. I'll be right back. Here we go. For John Stanley's Creature Features, we have Frankenstein Created Woman, 1967, three out of five stars, a hammer horror film for transsexuals. Peter Cushing, as Baron Frankenstein, has mastered the black science of capturing the spirit of a corpse. A male wraith is transplanted into the body of a beauty with a heaving bosom who goes around stabbing folks with a knife. Her bosom is heaving. That's so weird to put that. Production values are outstanding, and the cast is aptly manipulated by director Terrence Fisher, a specialist at motivating heaving bosoms. Screenplay by John Elder, produced by Anthony Keyes and Nelson Keyes, Story Walters, Robert Morris... I think it's kind of weird that he's making a joke out of this whole thing. Like, the heaving bosoms things. Like, I, I, yeah, she had cleavage, but I didn't notice the cleavage all that much. And she wasn't a sex symbol for the first half of the movie. Yeah, she wasn't. And it, it, maybe in the second half, I mean, she gets to the guys by seduction, more or less. But, but yeah. that's the fun. That's like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, naughty professor, nerd to, you know, that's that storyline. Right. Like, she's all that. And, in fact, this is a lot like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, where you have that personality where they go away and come back somebody completely different and they're, like, evil. Right. 
or she's all that where you make the bed about you can make the nerdy girl into like the popular. I don't girl. think that's that because she didn't kill a bunch of people and she didn't die. I mean, you there's know, there's no science for, involved. It's because we're all she did was line. all she did was take her glasses off. She was hot all that time and we never knew. Was she Velma? I don't know. I barely remember she's all that. Freddie Prince Jr. was in that. He was um, probably didn't see it. He was uh, probably Freddy. just swinging this. Wait, what's his name? Freddie. <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. sucks. Wait, did Freddie Prince Jr. play Freddie and Scooby Doo? Yes, he did. First name. Yes, he Is did. That real life. Yes. Wow. Okay. And Scooby Doo was a CGI dog. Yes. <laughs> okay. So next week, I think it's Crater Mass <laughs> and the Pit. Um, I loved Frankenstein Created Woman. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. I would recommend this one. It's one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein. The name stands for fear. Frankenstein. He shocks the world as he mocks the devil. Frankenstein. He creates monsters of men. Frankenstein's most terrifying experiment comes to life. Frankenstein created woman. Who am I? Who am I? You see, a shield of indestructible matter. What is it for? What is it for? To give life after death, my friend, that's what it's for. Life after death. Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein, who crosses swords with Satan in his fight for immortality. He lives. See, hence he's alive. Susan Denberg as Christina, the deformed creature transformed by Frankenstein to a living beauty. Within her, a dead man's revengeful urge to kill. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him, Christina. Forley Walters, the doctor who helps Frankenstein to violate the laws of nature. Christina, my dear, that man possesses such power, such knowledge, that well, sometimes I don't even understand him myself. Hans! The boy Hans is the tool of the Frankenstein experiment. <laughs> These boys are the cause. Come back. He's come back from the grave. Somebody's brought him back. The Masterpieces of Horror. Ah! The Ultimate in Evil and Desire. Frankenstein, Monster and Madness. Frankenstein Created Woman. 
a beautiful woman with the soul of the devil. <laughs> and in the same double shock program, absolute in terror, the mummy shroud. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood. Beware the beats of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the mummy shroud. Uh, I, I see death. Dead a thousand years. Now he lives and breathes to avenge an ancient curse. To strangle the living. Raise the dead. And pray upon human flesh. Remember, they're together. The ultimate in evil and the absolute in terror. Don't miss this gruesome twosome in color by deluxe from 20th Century Fox. Okay, guys, I know that was a mouthful, and uh, it's like, as I did so many reviews, my brain is, like, fried. Like, I, I would go through those Ring movies, I'm just like, man, I did not do a great job on those. But, hey, can't be great every time, eh? Excuse King. I'm just kidding. But we have some questions. Uh, Claire Bear, six days until Halloween, who here still gets in costume? Ooh, I occasionally do. Last last year, I just threw on a mask to pass out candy, like a goofy cornhead mask. But like, you don't wear it all day. You take it off. I remember you going to Halloween parties. You always dress up, and you always like it becomes like you always want to outdo your last costume, and it always becomes like a chore or something like that. And I hate that feeling. I just want to have fun on Halloween. Uh, Hudson, will you be picking up Arrow's Collector's Edition of Nightbreed? I won't unless there's something new on it. I'm not going to pick it up if it's the same cuts. I really wanted to see the complete Cabal cut. I don't know if that's going to be on there. I know there was the one Cabal cut, but I want to see the extended complete, and I know that was canceled. So Nick Mua, since the prequel is gaining ground again, would you be interested as an actor in exploring the roots of your character Charlie, the henchman from The Batman? I wouldn't mind. I do. I did have a conversation with Scott because I asked him, how did this guy become him? I had a theory, and uh, it could be one of two things. And he told me it was the other one, and I was like, okay. So that was how I kind of played him. And I would be inter- I would do another movie, and I think that it would be more interesting to dive into that world again. Could you list some of your favorite prequels, if any? I don't know if I have that many favorite prequels, to be honest. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, to be honest. Do I have any favorite prequels? Uh, I mean, I didn't hate Rogue One. I guess that counts. I know a lot of people don't like it, but uh, why do you think European actors are always cast as villains in U.S. movies? I don't know where that started from, but I think that, um, you know, like even back in the day, like twirling mustache, they always have like an accent. I think that they just seem more bigger. Like I think a lot of the um, uh, foreign actors are you know, theater actors, I think, and they can be bigger, bigger performances than a lot of American actors who can be more subtle. That's not always the case. That's just not a, it's a, it's a generalization, but I think a lot of it is true. And I do think back to like Bond movies, they were usually foreign. 
um, as bad guys. And I think that even thinking back to World War Two and stuff like that, that Nazi idea got stuck in people's head that, you know, Nazis are bad. So a lot of the foreign characters just have bad accents. And I think that um, it just kind of stuck with it in, in general because it's just something that would make the characters stand out. And they always portrayed foreign people as like a lot of times in movies as super flamboyant or over the top. So that, that character can be that, I guess. But I don't necessarily have a dead reason for you. I bet it goes all the way back to from the beginning of film, to be honest. But um, I would say that uh, at wartime situations would make you make the make the uh, other country the bad guy. Um, from okay, then we have um, we have answers. So last time I asked your favorite meal scene in any movie. So from the patrons, uh, Eau Claire says my favorite eating scene is nine and a half weeks, where when Mickey Rourke is feeding Kim Basinger things in front of the fridge with her eyes closed. It's so cringe, but I love that movie. D Boogie eighty six, glad you hung the. Uh, he says favorite meal scene in a movie is Spider Baby. The meta scene in it is awesome. Then we have some from Twitter, Mister Tony of the Dead. Off the top of my head, bad taste. Not really a meal scene, but they do pass around a bowl full of puke, and each takes a sip. Oh, aren't I lucky? I got a chunky peanut. Ugh. Uh, I haven't watched that in so long. Dr. Dingus Chase MD. Text Chainsaw Massacre immediately comes to mind. That's one for me too. And Dan Danget, the fly remake with Jeff Goldblum eating the donut. Then we have some from YouTube. Dead Flintstone, my favorite meal scene is the uh, Mr. Cresotti scene in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life and Salo. Uh, I've, Zach Nolan, I've always liked the that tobacco Tabasco sauce is very visible on the table in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. That is pretty funny. Hudson, my favorite meal scene has to be from the Dark Crystal. It reminds me of the Saturday night at McDonald's. Nick Moore, obvious choices maybe, but I still enjoy them. The final scene in The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Helen Mirren is awesome and everything. That is a great scene. The brine, the brain-frying, munching scene in Ridley Scott's Hannibal, mouth-watering. Lastly, I've always found the dinner scene in Texas Chainsaw 2 a hoop. Bring it all down. Brian Nielsen, favorite meal scene? That's easy. Ezra Cobb eating chicken dipped in peanut butter while discussing Marine Shelby with his dead mother in Deranged. Love that movie. I've been doing an internet detox for the past six months, so I'd like to answer the true crime question from a few weeks ago. The trial of Darcy Brudos, wife of serial killer Jerry Brudos, would be a fascinating story to tell. After a conviction based on a after after his convention uh, the conviction based on a rumor and neighborhood gossip, Miss Brudos was arrested, tried, and ultimately acquitted of being his accomplice. That's crazy. That would be cool. Directed by John Waters, because I know he had a fascination with Jerry Brudos. From Facebook, Daniel Washdog, the scene of Matilda always made me vomit as a kid. Jenny Murray Gumbo, eating spaghetti in a bathtub. Ugh, I hate that scene. Daniel Washdog, and of course, Mr. Kriet Soti in The Meaning of Life. I'm not sure how to say that. I have seen that part in The Meaning of Life. Uh, it's paper thin. Is that the scene right there? Yeah. And I, can't, I I've not seen that in years. Um, Paul Wilson, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, and Taxidermia, which is also a crazy, crazy movie. A Randall McDougal, Nutty Professor, Hercules. Yeah, I love that. That's pretty fun. I haven't seen that movie in years. Randall Hack, despite being shamed these days, I love the scene in American Beauty where Kevin Spacey throws the plate of green beans against the wall. Corey Earns, Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Child, Bon Appetit, Bitch. Ugh. I like the. I prefer the one in four where he eats the pizza and meatball. I love soul food. Uh, Christopher Wolf, The Big Bowl of Cherries and Witches of Eastwick. Michael Sinnott, Sinnott, how do you say your name? Please let me know. Murder by Death, Scott Taser, the ending of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Jimmy Cribs, Nothing But Trouble, and he put a gif of uh, Dan Aykroyd with his dick nose eating the, sa the sausage. I love that. 
fun, funny story. Me and my friends used to gross each other out or try to gross out one of my other friends by eating food like that. We just, and then eat it really as gross as we could. Food fall out of our mouth. It was not funny, but we thought it was. Zach Killingsworth, Text Chainsaw Massacre. Lindsay uh, Dennyberg, Problem Child 2. Timmy Tahoe, Soylent Green is delicious. Jeremy R., Pan's Labyrinth. David Brandon Harris, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. William Adcock, the rare, stairs, rare steak sequence in the beginning of 1999's Ravenous. Ricky Pachowitz, Talladega Nights. Matthew Hudson, Pulp Fiction, Breakfast. I mean, isn't it obvious? Other than that, maybe the pretend meal from Hook. Mark Humphreys, Alien, Chestburster Scene. I think that's one of the best, hands down. Amy Fox Goodwin, Goodfellas. He, she, she posts two pictures, Billy Bats post-dinner and the prison dinner. I love the Billy Bats uh, post-dinner. It looks just like him. That's such a great scene. Angela Jane Nagney, Caligula, Death Not Sallow, LOL. And then David Gibson right underneath, Sallow, Poop on a Platter. Oh, God. That's not a meal. That's torture. Derek Austin, hmm, Godfather 2, when they're discussing how to deal with Don Fanucci. Godfellas, when Tommy's mother makes him something to eat. Uh, and for some odd reason, Phoenix, when the bookie Chicago is eating steak and eggs. That scene inspired me to go out 3 a.m. and have steak and eggs. Victor Bonacore, Goodfellas. Joseph L. Zibergian, the dinner scene in Clue, and the dinner scene in The Much Maligned Tusk are both brilliant. Skip Barber, La Grande Buffet. Buffet? I have that. It's an arrow release. Never watched it. David Lewin, Silence of the Lambs, or Hannibal. I can't remember what picture he used. It looked like Hannibal, but I don't know if it Silence of the Lambs or not. Um, I think uh, Anthony Hopkins, because some people just posted pictures. He looked a little old, so. Uh, Dagger Renau, Eraserhead. That is a great one. Expe uh, the chickens, I love that. Factory-made chickens. Brad Twig, Dead Alive. Uh, and then Dagger Renault also mentions, I made five bucks once by being able to eat a plate of nachos and watching the heart-eating scene from Jason Goes to Hell. Uh, Virginia Shine, Beetlejuice. Matt Heachy, Reservoir Dogs. That's a good one. I would probably say that one. Uh, Mark Bessinger, The Adams Family. Jason Plum, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Loved that scene as a kid. Loved it. It was probably my favorite scene in that whole movie. Sonia Campbell, Blueberry Pie and Ghost Story. Noder, um, I'm going to have trouble with your name. It is uh, Nodar Convintia. Uh, Charlie, you post a picture of Charlie Chaplin when he's uh, eating his shoe. Uh, Robert Alvarez, I don't know if this would count, but the scene at the very end of Hannibal, where Hannibal Lecter is on the plane and is about to eat, and a young boy approaches him and he feeds the young boy brains. I think it's super dark, eerie, and amazing. And uh, he says that would be his number one, but he also posts pictures from uh, Scarface, Django Unchained, Untouchables, and Cool Hand Luke. All great. Cody Rapp, the dinner assassination in The Godfather is brilliant, and the mother of awkward meal scenes, Henry meeting Mary's parents in Eraserhead. I agree. I love that. Peter England has uh, five. Uh, good, Bad, and Ugly. Lee Van Cleef having a meal before his first killing in the movie. La Grande Buffet, the whole movie. Quest for Fire, when the three protagonists find pieces of meat. Sid Nancy, the Thanksgiving dinner scene. The cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, the last dinner. That's a great movie. Plus, special mention, the Blues Brothers fancy restaurant scene. And then, bear in mind, a terrible meal. Jason Lindbergh, the Dark Crystal, Silence of the Lambs. Lamb chops, extra rare. Jonathan Doe, spaghetti scene in gummo. Ugh! Dustin Mills, no face, eating everything, and spirited away. Scott W. Davis, Texas Chancel Massacre dinner scene, bar none. Um, Amy Fox Goodwin, the invitation scene, the dinner, that's a great movie. Uh, Nick Anderson, the cafeteria scene at Animal House, I'm a zit, get it. Uh, Randall Stutter, Dead Alive. Patty Rhodes, Singapore sling dinner scene, I need to watch that movie, I have it. 
uh, Jackie uh, Kelly, bathtub spaghetti and gummo. That's a that's a popular one. Seth Pullen, hook. Mike Brillhart, feed the funnel meal. Ugh, feed's so gross. Um, that director's from Toledo, where I'm from. So yeah, uh, I do. I remember liking that movie, but that is so gross. Feed me. I want to be a thousand pounds. Is that what she says? Gary Kufli Burgess, brain dead. Ear and custard still makes me rich. Uh, I love that. We haven't had. I we haven't had a. I haven't had a good custard in years. That's what he says. She never makes us stuff. I love that alive. And then Eric Waters underneath says, "What we need is another wall." He's quoting him. God, that alive is so quotable. One of the best. Bill Casanelli, the steak and ravenous. Eric Waters, yeah, gummo spaghetti bathroom scene by far. Ugh, I hate, just thinking about it makes me mad. Uh, Kyle Anthony Rayburn, Dead Alive. Jonathan Patrick Hughes, Pet Cemetery 2. Gus eating lima beans is awesome. I love Gus in that movie. No brains, no pain. Is that what he says? I haven't seen that in years, too. Uh, I do remember eating dinner, just like mashed potatoes coming out of him. Ugh. BDG Reviews, The Brain Scene in Hannibal. Uh, Byrony Rose, uh, Copnell. Remney preparing an omelet and ratatouille. Stanley Eisman, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Jason Siegel, here's one that no one mentioned, the dinner scene in Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's a rather tender subject. Another slice, anyone? Andrew Scott, Texas Chainsaw 2. Robert Barry Franco's Rocky Horror Picture Show, where meatloaf is served as meatloaf. Uh, Brenda McKay, Sleepwalkers, corn on the cob in the back. Love that, too. Joe Meredith, fried chicken and poltergeist. Greg Bonninger. I don't know how to say your last name, Greg. I've known you for years, and I don't know how to say it. Is it Greg uh, Bonno? Uh, Blues Brothers. Karen Werner. James Cagney in Public Enemy Number 1, when he mushed the grapefruit in her face. Not very PC these days, but very memorable. There's lots of great non-PC movies. I mean, I think like every movie now is probably not PC back in the day. Brett Montez, Iris eating stew in uh, um, Beyond the Darkness. Oh, that's, that stuff is gross, man. Uh, Mark Frado, the scene in Goodfellas when Pesci's Ma cooks dinner for the guys while they still have Billy Bats in the trunk outside. Sebastian Sanjuro, Ari's, Freddy Got Fingered, Scott Shermer, The Color Purple, Jonathan Edward Smith, Dinner Scene in Hereditary was the first that comes to mind, even though the correct answer for me is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre's dinner scene. The beginning also had a pretty fantastic pair of dinner scenes. Ryan Matthew Ziegler, The Bride of Frankenstein, both the scene with the hermit and Pretorius eating the crypt whilst laughing at a skull. Oh, I thought I was alone. Michael Stemberger, when Sally's invited in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sid Meredith, morning breakfast scene from Deadly Spawn. Love the Deadly Spawn. Don Adams, Alien. Susie Ayola, or Ayala? I don't want to say your name. Ayala? Ayala. I'm a moron. Eraserhead. It's hard talking so much, I start to make mistakes. Excuse me. Jessica Elson, four different scenes from Raw come to mind. Dean Turner, Trout, Troll 2. And then we have some old answers. Paul Weichel, my favorite an- from the old favorite anthology I asked. My favorite anthology horror is definitely Dr. Tear's House of Horrors. I grew up watching that one many, many times. My dad introduced me to that one. He actually got to see it in a theater when he was eight years old. All these years later, and the both of us still love the movie. I enjoy all the anthology horror that Abacus put out. I also find enjoyment in all these. Black Sabbath with friends like these. Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonders. Dark Dealer. Cat's Eye. Tales from the Dark Side. Dead Time Stories. Scary Tales. And Escapes. Have a good one. Jeremy Schaefer, Jeremiah Schaefer, Three Extremes, Fear of the Dark, and Snoop Dogg's Hood of Horror are all a lot of fun. And Mr. Remote 420, Creepshow, hands down. The stories were not only interesting, there were tons of better acting in it. There were tons of there was tons of better acting in it. And um, I also want to ask the question of the week. Uh, since we asked your favorite meal scene, what is your favorite walking scene in a film? And before I forget, 
It's got to be the Wild Bunch. But also, I really like the walking scene in uh, Reservoir Dogs. So, your favorite walking scene in a movie. Uh, we'll have that one. I guess we're going to hop into the update. Do you ever realize you're an idiot? Um, well, basically, I'm an idiot. I got Toy Story 4 and 4K. And this was an accident. This was again with the, I'm in the Disney club and I keep forgetting to decline their automatic sendings. So basically I got uh, Toy Story 4. I haven't even seen Toy Story 2. So yeah, I guess I got Toy Story 4 now. Um, I mean, maybe I should give it to my nephew or something like that. I'm thinking about it, but I don't think he watched it. He's old enough to watch yet. So I, I don't know. But I got Toy Story 4. So if you ever do the Disney Club, make sure you turn down the stuff you don't want. So we're going to hop in. We got the Kino sale. Scream and Scream Again. This isn't a great movie, um, but it is enjoyable to a certain extent. It has Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing. Um, it's okay. I'm going to be honest. Um, there's some really funny moments in this movie. The trailer, watch the trailer, and they'll be like, Vincent Price, and show Vincent Price. They'll be like, Christopher Lee, show Christopher Lee, and they'll say Peter Cushing, and then they show some guy that the guy who edited the trailer thinks is uh, Peter Cushing, but it's not. Cushing has a very small role in this one. It's okay. I had to have it, you know. Then we have Trilogy of Terror 2, uh, Anthology. I haven't seen this in years. Jeffrey Lewis is in this, and Matt Clark. That's fun. That's kind of two genre actors. They're both in, um, what... Uh, Cold Pepper Cattle Company. They're both in that one together. So yeah, I remember watching this one. It has the rat story in there. It's been years since I watched this movie. I really look forward to checking it out again. And then we got Dead of Night, another anthology. I heard this is great. It has the story uh, with the doll in there that I hear so much about. Um, I've always wanted to see this one. 1945 black and white horror anthology. Heard it's great. Here it's one of the best. So yeah, looking forward to checking that one out too. Maybe I'll watch it on a Halloween or something. Then we got The Man Who Haunted Himself with Roger Moore, another, you know, horror flick from Kino, one of the Studio Canal releases. Heard this has great atmosphere and has great performance by Roger Moore is what I hear. So that's kind of cool to see Roger Moore in a horror movie. And then we got Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Yeah, John Carradine as Dracula. And we got Billy the Kid in here. This this title is I've heard for years. I never saw it. It looks so ridiculous. I just had to see it. Had to have it. I'm sure it's nonsense, but I, I'm excited. And then we have Night Tide by Curtis Harrington, starring Dennis Hopper. I hear nothing but great things about this movie, and I've always wanted to see it. I think I have a DVD, but you know, if I waited this long to watch it, might as well watch it in style, in Blu-ray. Dennis Hopper, super young there. Curtis Harrington did a lot of cool movies. Um, what's the one that comes to mind with uh, John Savage? I have, uh, the Killing Kind? I believe that's what it's called. And lastly, we have Satanic Panic. And this is not the Walmart version, if you guys have seen. In Walmart, they just call it Panic on the slipcover. So silly, so silly. But yeah, Satanic Panic. Look forward to checking this one out. Heard fun things. Um, it's supposed to be a comedy whore. Yeah, I'm in. But uh, I guess we're going to hop back to the video, guys. Thanks for watching. Okay, guys. As always, um, you know what? My, uh, if you like what you see, subscribe. Give it a thumbs up. If not, you don't have to. But uh, follow me on Twitter and uh, Instagram and all those things and whatnot. Visit the Screaming Toilet uh, site for some written reviews and some more info if you'd like. All the links are always below. But uh, as always, guys, thank you very much for watching. And you guys have a good one. Yeah.